Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. Today we're going to talk about openness to creative destruction, lessons from the past for the transformative innovation of the future. And we have the pleasure to welcome Professor Arthur Diamond as our guest today, one of the leading experts in economic history in the world. And he will take us through a narrative of human progress through creative destruction, or as he calls it, innovative dynamism, showing how we throughout history and now have created unprecedented benefits through ample examples, details, and anecdotes. And he also demonstrates how such dynamism is far from inevitable and the factors that then and now are holding back its potential. We warmly welcome him today to tell us about what we can learn from history to promote the transformative innovation in the future. And we have divided this podcast up into two parts because of the wealth of detail that this excellent book contains. And part one will be about innovative dynamism and especially up until the Second World War. And in part two, we will be talking about the modern era and the implications for the future. Welcome, Professor Diamond. Well, thank you. And thank you for that generous introduction. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So let's move to part one, why innovative dynamics. First, let me ask you to tell you a little bit about yourself and uh, why you wrote this book and what drove you to it. There are, of course, several books, such as those of McCloskey and McCoy, that go through a similar period of history. But what did you feel was important to add? When I was very young, I enjoyed reading books about inventors and scientists, and uh, they were my heroes. And I think when you're young, especially, but throughout the rest of your life, it's, it's good to have heroes to help you move forward when, when it's hard to move forward. When I got to college, I was lucky enough to have a course by a guy named Ben Rogge, and he's not very well known now, but he was a good friend of people like Milton Friedman and George Stigler. And uh, in fact, he invited Milton Friedman down to the college to give some lectures that turned out to be Milton Friedman's most famous book, Capitalism and Freedom. The best course I had, I think even in including graduate school, was a course I had uh, from Ben Rogge on comparative economic systems, where the main book that we read was Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy by Joseph Schumpeter. And especially that central part where he talks about the capitalism part and talks specifically about creative destruction was one of the most exciting things that I'd ever read. Most of economics, and I think this is important and good and useful, is about equilibrium. How does an economy return to stasis when it gets nudged off of it by some external event? And you can learn a lot about that. You can learn a lot about how interventions of government have uh, various effects. But what Schumpeter did was different. Schumpeter talked about the big leaps forward that he claimed made a difference, a big difference in people's lives, and especially, especially made a big difference in the lives of the least well off. And I thought that was different and incredibly exciting. When I teach this book now, I uh, sometimes have my students read a little review by somebody named Joan Robinson. 
And Robinson in the history of economics is known as someone who was fairly far on the left, not at all a defender of capitalism. But I was surprised when I first read her review that she was extremely positive about capitalism, socialism, and democracy. And she said, the thing about this book is, I don't agree with a lot of it, but it's not the usual parrot house of economists where they're repeating what each other says. This is something different and interesting. And I think it wasn't only, it wasn't just different and interesting. It had important truths that were not appreciated, especially the importance of innovation. Well, then fast forward to later in my life when I was teaching economics and teaching a principles course most semesters, I would do the standard material that I learned, a good bit of it from my classes in Chicago. And I had some great classes in Chicago, including one from Deirdre McCloskey. But uh, I found that when I got it, the part of the class I got excited about was the half hour every semester when I snuck in some Schumpeter and started talking about how innovation matters and about how life leapt forward in the quality and length around the time, starting around the time of the Industrial Revolution. And I did this year after year. And at some point, I had kind of a moment of reckoning that, that sometimes you get as you get older. And the moment of reckoning was I sat back and said, why is it that you only spend a half an hour on what you find really exciting and compelling? Shouldn't you, if that's what you think it matters, the half hour on Schumpeter and on innovation, then why shouldn't that be more of what you teach and also more of what you do research on? A lot of my research had to do with the metrics of evaluating science and, uh, and academic research, which are important topics. But I thought what's most important are the sorts of topics raised by Schumpeter. So at that point, 20, 25 years ago, I made a shift. I started teaching in addition, I still teach principles, but I also have been teaching economics of entrepreneurship, economics of technology. And more importantly, maybe is I shifted my research in a major way to try to see if I could say anything significant and also communicate more clearly perhaps what has already been said on important topics of innovation and human flourishing. So uh, that may be a, a longer answer than, than you wanted, but that, that gives some sort of the background of how I got from early on to now doing uh, finally this book that you mentioned that uh, I think pays homage to what Schumpeter did, but I think in a couple of respects maybe adds something important to what Schumpeter said. And I am also proud, as you mentioned, of the examples and illustrations, because I think they not only give us good information, they also help us to remember and understand what's important. Well, thank you very much, sir. and congratulations at uh, the, the compliment from Joan Robinson. It's actually not easy to write books that are attractive people come from, at least in a sense of the opposite ideological position. Not many people manage to do that. And congratulations also on the examples and, and on the steps that you have taken to really focus on this problem, which is not really being ignored because people don't see its importance, but because I think a tendency within economics to focus on what you can measure, what you can come to scientifically reliable conclusions about, and not all the different factors that might be involved here. But you make a difference, you make a distinction between um, Schumpeter's idea of creative destruction and you call it uh, innovative dynamism. And I think McCloskey calls it trade adjusted betterments. Are these three different visions that you have or do you have some specific distinctions in mind that, that characterizes your particular theory? 
Well, I think McCloskey was part of my inspiration for changing the label. It's not usually good to change labels. People are used to hearing a certain phrase, knowing what it means. The problem with creative destruction is I thought it was misleading in a really important way. McCloskey has many expertise, and one of them is in communicating clearly. And one of the things she emphasizes is that when you're you're writing a paragraph or a sentence or a book, what people take away from it most is what is at the end. So what you maybe want to focus on very strongly is the end of a sentence, the last word of a sentence, the last word of a paragraph, the last sentence of a book. And uh, the last word in my book, by the way, is the word alive. I thought about it, actually. What's the most important word? And I taught, well, anyway, that's a, a different story. Creative destruction The last word is destruction. And that's not what's most important about this economic system that I'm talking about in the book. And in fact, part of where I think I move a little bit further than Schumpeter is Schumpeter saw strong trade-offs. He saw the creation, but he also saw that labor was uh, significantly hurt in the process of leaping forward. One of the findings in my book is labor on balance in general actually benefits from these leaps forward. Another trade-off that Schumpeter saw was that he saw that we as consumers benefit, but we benefit mainly from the new goods, but we give up the lower prices of the already existing goods. He thought if you have more of the competition, the results in new goods, you have less of the competition, the results in lower prices. Part of what I claim in my book is that through uh, innovative dynamism, you get both good things, both the new dramatically innovative product, but also lower prices through process innovations. So I thought that phrase creative destruction puts too much emphasis on the destruction. Instead, it ought to be more fully uh, positive, innovative dynamism. And I don't, in terms of, of emphasizing trade in a possible way of describing this system, sometimes in some portions of her latest book of the trilogy, the Bourgeois Trilogy, McCloskey herself emphasizes that trade is important. It's great. Adam Smith told us that, and we, we've learned it from others as well. But McCloskey points out that trade is not enough to explain the great flourishing that started to occur at the beginning of the, of the uh, Industrial Revolution. So I think it's very important to emphasize what is, in fact, the most important driver of that flourishing, and that's innovation. So I respectfully, and uh, I could say humbly, but it's not really humble if I'm honest, I do think that my label has something to be said for it. Maybe somebody will come up with something better, but I think it is important. The reason why I just don't stop with dynamism, briefer is better if if briefer does the job, but dynamism sometimes can be referred to just change, but not, but directionless change. Dynamism, you can, you can have a lot of motion, a lot of churn. And in fact, some people have described creative destruction. They've used the word churn, but I don't like churn because churn to me seems just moving around. And I want to say, it's not just moving around, it's moving forward that we're talking about. And so what I'm hoping the word innovative does is it points our attention to the fact that this is motion, but it's motion in a good direction, a positive direction. I could say one more word, which is why, why not use capital in the phrase? And McCloskey's made this point too, and others have as well, but um, capital is needed for the movement forward, but it's misleading to say that's the crucial element. You can't have a strong, you don't have a strong correlation between increases in capital and the, the rate of progress. There's something else that, that is important. And uh, so it, it, I think, is an unfair wrap on, on uh, innovative dynamism to connect it too tightly with uh, capital. 
Yes, um, definitely. And we learned that lesson, I think, very clearly in the, the years after World War II when we invested massively in capital accumulation in third world countries and it was the standard conviction and it led to many pretty horrific experiences and Peter Bauer I think also from University of Chicago was one of the few to speak up against that. I like the term better I think it I think it complements many of the things that well first of all Schumpeter was maybe not a good marketer didn't consult a marketing agency when he came up with that but it might also be a product of, of the legacy of economic thought at the time, uh, structuralism and Marxism, and also the fact that there were several depressions going on. It was not, it was not absolutely clear that what, when people lost jobs, for instance, that it would be easy for them to find a new one. But he got the point right. But I wanted to talk now specifically about where this dynamism has flourished. And you mentioned a couple of examples, Renaissance, Florence, Amsterdam, and so on, but your focus is on the US and, and the UK. Now, my question is, first, how did this come about? Laissez-faire, for instance, as a thought, was far from a point of consensus. It was seen as the, the loony part of the Manchester School. And it was not actually until Marshall that it was even proper to talk about free market capitalism. So what happened, especially in the US at that time, starting at about 1830, that created the kind of dynamism that made someone like Marshall, formerly a socialist, change his mind in that way? I want to start answering that question by saying that I, I say in the books, you're quite correct, that the um, high point or golden age of innovative dynamism is uh, roughly between 1830 and 1930. But I want to admit that that's certainly not written in stone. And if you argued that I should have started it in 1820 or uh, even a little bit earlier, I would not fight you very hard on that. I borrowed that range from someone who wrote a book uh, that, that uh, I like quite a bit, uh, Edmund Phelps, called uh, Mass Flourishing. And he gives reasons why he thinks that is the range when innovative dynamism was at its peak. And he talks about how wages, for instance, really took off in 1830. He's looking at metrics, in other words, which I don't actually emphasize as much. I emphasize in my judgment about where there's innovative dynamism. What you were describing just now that Marshall saw in a sense of, of vibrancy. So when I list examples in the little section of one of the chapters of places where innovative dynamism thrived, I'm doing it more on the basis of having read accounts of various places at various times in history where they, they seem to have that kind of vibrancy, where you, you had people who were optimistic, who were energetic, who were trying new things and who felt that they could make the world better. And so reading about that sort of place, I have to admit that I find that enormously appealing. That's the sort of place I want to live in. And it seems like at various times that that, that was true at different places in the world. McCloskey talks about some of these issues, too. She puts a lot of emphasis on uh, Amsterdam and uh, the Netherlands. And she was trying to answer the question of what is it that caused those places to become the vibrant places where innovative dynamism and human flourishing occurred. And it's a really tough question. I think it's an important question, but I'm not sure that I don't think I know that I know some plausible, possible, partial answers. And I think McCloskey's answer is where was dignity respected for the bourgeois, 
for people who were practically oriented trying to make the world better. She emphasizes uh, dignity. There's a, a fellow who's working on a book that I saw a chapter of that I thought was really interesting, a fellow named Anton Howes. And in the chapter I read, he emphasizes what he calls the improvement mentality. And he's got a database of people who he's identified as innovators early on in Britain. And he tries to look at what's common about them. And he says that that's a key. Just this the idea that that it's possible to improve and it's a good thing. And I think that that matters. The question you can always ask is, if it's dignity, what caused people to start viewing the bourgeois with more and giving them more respect and dignity? If it's a innovation mentality, what changed to uh, make that important for a growing number of people? And, and what Howe does is he says once it started, he identifies certain figures who he said were evangelists for the improvement mentality, uh, who mentored younger scientists and entrepreneurs and inventors. But, at, but, the, but the question you'd most like to ask answer is what, what started it? What was the initial spark? It's hard. I, I remember once I had a wonderful course. I was a philosophy student at Chicago before I switched over to economics as my main area. And I took a wonderful course in the uh, philosophy of history from Alan Donegan. And uh, I remember asking him, I said, why did the Scottish Enlightenment with uh, the founder of economics, Adam Smith, but also the founder of chemistry, the founder of geology, they used to get together for drinks once a week and talk about everything. It was called the Scottish Enlightenment. And so I, I said to Donegan, why did that great flourishing of, of enlightenment thought occur in Edinburgh, of all places, where Edinburgh wasn't very, very well respected by people, the mainstream, like, like the intellectuals in London. Why did that happen when it did in Edinburgh? And so he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye, and I, I liked the twinkle because it made me think, not take too seriously what he said, because what he said was, Art, that's a stupid question. And he said, the reason why it's a stupid question is that uh, you and I believe in free will and we believe that people make choices. And you're asking a question that if it's to be answered implies that there's some kind of determination going on. And there may be questions that in the end you can't answer. Why does there turn out to be people coming together at a certain time and place that make that a really lively place? Maybe on some fundamental level, you just have to say, because it turned out that by maybe by chance or luck or whatever word you want to use, a critical mass of really motivated, sharp, entrepreneurial people got together at that time and place. So I don't know, this is a question you ask that I find fascinating and important. And I've thought about it for decades and I don't think I've got a great answer, but uh, that's the answer that you're going to get because that's where I'm at on it at the moment, I think. Well, there's obviously no excellent answer to all of this, but there are some interesting ideas there. One, one thing I picked up on was, of course, this intellectual revolution in Edinburgh, where you got substantial advances in, in medical science and philosophy at the same time. And then also, of course, Adam Smith, who actually considered a social psychologist. Uh, people call him an economist, but his greatest work was actually the theory of moral sentiments that talks about how humans interact and what kind of values they have in that interaction, what they want, what they want to look like. And that's basically, that's basically social psychology. And all of this came together. That seems to be one element. Another element seems to have been some kind of physical locations where people actually met. You talk about cities 
in the French Enlightenment, we had um, we had the salons, and the third maybe is some kind of spark. Of course, the great philosopher Dave Hume was from Edinburgh, I think, but there was even an enabling environment before that. There was um, there was the idea of the Enlightened Monarch that came. It was sort of the French version of the Enlightenment, and then the British version of the Enlightenment, which was the Glorious Revolution with the rights of man. So all of a sudden, we had much more openness and tolerance to new ideas. Science had, had, had made progress, and many of the old ideas had been debunked, and we had a much more lenient version of, of Christianity, and it was even possible, as among some of the French philosophers, to outright reject religion, although it took another century for that to, to be clearly voiced also in philosophy, apart from Spinoza. So there were a lot more freedoms that were going on, and cities were important, and I think those are uh, two important explanatory elements. But I think specifically in America, I see a country that was founded on principles that were radical at the time. No one believed that the Republic could work could work on that scale. Many of the founding fathers didn't, didn't even work it. And the Constitution is basically the result of an imperfect compromise among states that wanted to extract as much as possible. That's why you have this division of powers, but it turned to have the upside that there was a certain control on the state and a certain assumption that the role and the, the interventionist role of the state would be limited and that people would be left with to fend for themselves, but also with the range of opportunities, uh, such as the Homestead Act. And that might have created a lot of excitement. And then you had some, uh, the American version of philosophy, the pragmatists, who also allowed a way to distinguish themselves from old Europe in that basically saying, you know, all of this, all of this philosophy is actually casuistry, what you really need to look at are the pragmatic effects, uh, which is something that I think also might have driven uh, the extreme outcome oriented culture that might have that might have prevailed at the time and enabled this dynamism. I certainly think that there are various constraints that when loosened or when institutions change that can make it easier to have uh, innovative dynamism. And I, I you mentioned uh, uh, in passing the, the federalism that the Constitution it had powers that are the federal governments and, and that some that remained in the states. That could have had something uh, that could be an institutional decision by chance or by foresight that has helped maintain institutions that are friendly to innovative dynamism. One of one of the accounts um, that a couple of people have made, Mokir, I think, is one and Milton Friedman's son, David Friedman, is another who's written on this, is they try to ask the question, why has Europe been more of a center? Was it historically a center for innovative dynamism, at least parts of Europe, and not China and the East? The China had a for for quite a while. It's been documented by Needham, especially. There were many technological achievements up to I don't know 1300, 1400, but then the West shot ahead. And one argument for why that was was that there, in some ways, was something vaguely like federalism in Europe, where you had a lot of little states. And the idea is that the states then compete with each other and try out different institutions. The ones that are more successful are the ones that will draw and attract the uh, entrepreneurs, the intellectuals, and the people who are driven to make the world better. 
and and you can give examples of that. Um, Spain at one point expelled and and uh, didn't treat Jews very well. And so some of the Jews went to the Netherlands and then did interesting, productive, innovative things in, in the Netherlands. So I think that's a possible, that, that's certainly partial Spinoza. explanation, but you can, Spinoza would be the, a great example. But other accounts of constraints that matter, one of my, one of the whimsical ones, but I think there could be something to it, is in a book by Stephen Johnson. I think it's called uh, something like Where Great Ideas Come From. And he points out that at a certain point in Britain, coffee shops became popular and coffee became a drink that was much more widely available. And part of the point he makes is when you used to get together in a pub drinking beer, you're not going to be as sharp as you are when you're sitting together with your friends drinking coffee, caffeine. And so he attributes some of the enlightenment to caffeine, to something as simple as what we consume and how it sharpens or dulls the mind. So I think we can talk about a lot of causes that help or hurt. It still maybe doesn't get to the question of how, you know, what's the initial spark. I think we're, we're actually getting closer, if, uh, to be honest, because let me just draw a parallel to Switzerland for a second. It's a country that I live in, but it's so complicated that I could probably name all the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, but I could not name who the president is of Switzerland. It's a deliberately obscure figure. It's a small country of 8 million divided up into, I think it's 26 fiercely independent cantons that handle pretty much everything, as little as possible as handled on the federal level. So, and so the question is, why lose all of this synergy? Why not centralize more and more than you should do? And the even more important question is, why is Switzerland consistently ranked as the most competitive or one of the most competitive countries in the world? Well, there are many reasons for that, but I think one reason is that the cantons have a lot of liberty to explore all kinds of different policy options. Some of them have zero percent income tax. Some of them have 40 percent income tax. Some of them have almost no zoning regulations. Some of them like Geneva have excessive zoning regulations. They look at the success of the others and as soon as something, as they see a good idea, they're very likely to absorb it. And there are even councils and formal mechanisms to do that. And if that happens systematically, whether informally or formally, you're probably likely to, to, to be better off. And then I think it was the, the constraints uh, that were necessary to form a federation in the first place that led to strengthening of, of certain basic rights that were important for innovation, such as the rule of law and, and property, uh, and also later also the acceptance of failure and, and, and uh, celebrate, celebration of entrepreneurship because it was supposed to be learned. You had to try things out. These were heroes at the time. These are the ones that drove development forward. So maybe the story is coming together there, there a little bit. It combined uh, the enlightenment, it put an American spin on it, and it had a constitution that provided for very strong basic rights and, and constraints on governments that were kept more or less up until the advent of uh, progressivism uh, century later. I don't know much about Switzerland. I, I, it's like there's so many topics on which I want to know more. I, I try to um, acquire innovative entrepreneurs, sort of a list, and learn more about as many of them as I can. And uh, 
I have my students help me on that in my economics of entrepreneurship class. They do a report on uh, a major innovative entrepreneur. I've I've heard of I remember one from Switzerland, and I think his name surprisingly it might have been Hayek, uh, but it was somebody who had made some innovations not not related to the Hayek that neoliberal economists uh, admire, including me. But this this fellow uh, made some innovations, but I can't remember what they were in watches, I believe. But what what's puzzling is you sometimes see federalism like you're describing. It seems like in Switzerland, and and Switzerland. It's, for all I've heard, I've only been to Switzerland's airport. I've never really been in Switzerland. I can't say. But my impression is it's a wonderful place to live, as you say. But I'm I'm I have never heard it having a great reputation for breakthrough transformative being the source of breakthrough transformative innovations. And so the question then would be, when does federalism help catalyze that? And when does it, it still may be a good thing for other reasons, but when is that not catalyzed in a place that still has some kind of federalism as you're describing Switzerland as having? I do think the general point that diversity of institutions and diversity of experiments is a good thing. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we all of us have, even the people who know the most about uh, science and technology, have a huge amount of uncertainty. And that's one of the points that comes through in my book in a variety of places with various illustrations. And when there's so much uncertainty, the approach that I argue is most uh, productive is to allow as diverse a set of experiments as, is, as you have the resources to do. Because then some of them will work, some of them won't. That's one of the arguments against centralization, right? Because centralized, you could have people who are not corrupt, who are work really hard, make their best decisions, but they're still often going to get it wrong. But if you put all your eggs in that wrong basket, you're not going to be able to move forward as much as if you allow different people with different views of what's going to work to uh, bet their own resources on those uh, on those guesses. And so uh, I think there's a broader, there's diversity is a good thing. Sometimes it results in innovation and sometimes it doesn't seem to. So there's, it's probably one of those cases where the world is messy. McCloskey, you know, I, I think McCloskey is wonderful in a huge number of ways. But one area where I disagree with her a little bit is in her second book in the Bourgeois uh, trilogy. She makes the case that there, there's got to be one cause, one fundamental cause. And she goes through all the alternative causes she can think of, like 30 of them. And then at the end, she sa- eliminates all of them. And she says, well, what's left? Dignity. But my argument is, and I think dignity matters. I don't, I don't want to downplay the importance of respecting the bourgeois. But I think you can have, it makes the world messier. And it's unfortunate. And it's not as appealing aesthetically in other ways. But the world may, in the end, be messy. That's what's one thing that's frustrating. There's a guy named David Landis who's written some good books on some of these same issues. What is it that moved us forward dramatically in the Industrial Revolution and, for, and, and further? But one thing that's frustrating about David Landis's works is he's got a lot of what people criticize economists for, that economists too often say on the one hand, on the other hand, on the third hand. He says there's a lot of things that matter. Messy. I'm What I worry is that could be true. It could be there is no one single cause, but that when enough of the things that matter come together, you know, you're drinking coffee, you've got federalism, you've got freedom from being beaten up. I mean, one of the things that's crucial that we don't mention often enough is for all these things to work, you have to live in a society where you don't have to worry about too much about getting murdered when you walk down the street, right? There's a guy who's written a great book, uh, 
Haugen, I think is his name, called the book's called The Locust Effect. And he says, if you're trying to do good things in parts of the world, you should forget about food and you should forget about education and you should forget about all of these things except for one thing. So the one thing you shouldn't forget about is keep people safe, having parasites come in and slaughter them. And then he gives it, it's a horrible book to read, painful book to read, but he goes through chapter after chapter of places in the world where that's how people uh, are functioning is in a society where randomly at who knows when they'll be swooped in by by thugs and uh, and killed. And so, I mean, there are there, you can say there are certain prerequisites for innovative dynamism. The first one, I guess, if you're going to try and make a hierarchical list is you have to live in a society where you're not always at fear for losing your life from some predator. Right? And then you can go on and say, here's some other things that help ending with coffee. But uh, it's going to be messy. It's going to be a long list and it may still not be a total explanation. Maybe at some point in the story, you have the free will of a couple people who decide they're going to make a difference in a new and important way and that that mattered and where they decide to do it. And why did Silicon Valley happen in Silicon Valley? Yeah. I heard a paper given. I'm sorry, I'm going too long on this, but the, <laughs> I heard a paper given by a credible uh, expert on clustering of innovation who said all the accounts people have given, you know, about Stanford and Hewlett Packard's garage and all that. He said, yeah, that are plausible, but that's not it. The reason is William Shockley, the guy who invented the transistor back at Bell Labs in the East Coast of the United States, he, did, he wanted to move close to his mother who lived in Silicon, in what was potentially Silicon Valley. He moved there. He brought in eight really bright people, later called the traitor as eight when they abandoned Shockley. And uh, that's the rest is history. The rest started rolling. And so, yeah. so some things, some things about where this starts could result, could result from as silly and seemingly unimportant a decision as where a really bright, really entrepreneurial, really important figure decides they want to live. You know, Bentonville yeah. has become a great a great place, I understand. I've never been there. But uh, it Bentonville, Arkansas is what it is now because that's where Sam Walton wanted to go hunting. And uh, otherwise, you can't give any deep account of Bentonville being now a center of culture and enterprise and innovation, although I understand that it now it's not Silicon Valley, but that it's much more than it would have much, much, much more than it would have been if it weren't for where Sam Walton decided he wanted to live. Well, we we we, we always have this conflict something between the the need for a simple explanation and the the complexity of of history. It's the famous the famous Tolstoy argument, and it keeps coming up uh, all over. But there are definitely some elements that are coming together, such as the ones that you mentioned, uh, stability, rule of law, freedom from violence, freedom from constant fear of disease, some kind of uh, dignity or cultural acceptance of, of, entrepreneur, of entrepreneurship. So we have, we have some of the features already there that have been present in most cases where entrepreneurship has flourished. And uh, which arguably were not present in Ming Dynasty China with its uh, Confucian tradition. You could get a lot of innovation done that's in line with what the emperor, what the local lords want, but you cannot do much beyond that. So that is one of the reasons why it might have stopped there and then flourished as much as it, it did in first Amsterdam and then the UK and then and then the United States. But uh, just one more point about uh, this period of innovative dynamism, and we'll get later to some of the fruits of it. There was, of course, a lot of resistance towards innovation, as there always has been. With many classic examples, uh, 
that I think most of us can talk about. But tell us a little bit about why you think that even then, even in even in America, even in a country that was maybe the most entrepreneurial in the world, why there was so much uh, and so much widespread resistance. I, I think there's more than one reason here, too. There's a, a book I like a lot by Amar Bidet. Uh, he's originally from India, but he's he used to be at Columbia University and now I think he's at Tufts. He's it's called a venturesome economy. And uh, he part of what he says in there is that we give a lot of credit for innovation to uh, inventors and entrepreneurs, but there's a group that we often give too little credit to, and that's consumers. And he says for when a new product comes out, for it to be uh, sustainable, for the entrepreneur to survive, to keep trying to improve it, you have to have people willing to try it especially willing to try it at the early buggy, possibly even slightly dangerous stages of the product. And that one of the features that has distinguished uh, the United States, as you say, at least it did historically, was that we maybe were more venturesome than some other parts of the world. There's a guy uh, named Freeberg who's written a book called The Age of Edison, where he argues that even though Europe had many initial advantages in adopting electricity, it was adopted much more quickly in the United States. And he attributes that to their being uh, more venturesome citizens in the United States than in Britain and in Europe more generally. And uh, he said that resulted in less regulation in the United States than in Europe, and, and therefore we got electricity more quickly. But now this is not getting to your question about what's happening now, and is have we lost some of that venturesomeness? And I think maybe we have in the United States. I would say uh, part of the reason might be because our education system grinds it out of our children to some extent. And uh, there's a there's a psychologist, I can't remember her name now, but she writes an occasional column f uh, on Saturdays for the Wall Street Journal on uh, issues like innovativeness, and especially children. And she had one column I remember where she where she said that children are born natural scientists. And what she meant by that was they're they're curious and they explore and they want to understand and when they see something that doesn't make sense they're puzzled and they try to figure it out and and she said at some point we maybe we lose that and when i think about why do we lose that you think about a lot of our educational system what they emphasize what they reward is following the teacher's commands in memorizing and scoring well on tests that don't require curiosity or exploration or out-of-the-box thinking but that instead require memorization and the hard studying that brings you memorization. And if that's rewarded, and if asking tricky questions annoys your teacher too often, so they express that annoyance and they shut you down, then eventually I think most people will lose some of that curiosity that they were born with and be less venturesome. So I think that's part of the reason. Another part of the reason is that maybe people feel like they're, as they get older, they feel their situation is precarious and they worry about, will they personally be able to adapt to change and to prosper and flourish in it? There's always the worry of the unknown. There's also some concern that some of the innovations that have been important in recent decades might have consequences in the world that are unappealing. The main, what comes to mind partly are the are environmental consequences, for instance, would be one example. So I think uh, there still is a lot of venturesomeness among Americans, but also more widely. Look at how many people in the United States and around the world want an iPhone, 
and how many wanted it when it came out. In the bio, one of the biographies of Steve Jobs, uh, I think the one by uh, Isaacson, it describes uh, talking to Jobs and Jobs having gone on a trip with his family to someplace, Turkey, someplace in the Middle East. And he was impressed positively by the young people carrying around their smartphones. And it made Jobs, the broader lesson Jobs reached is that uh, there's some universal values shared, not just by Americans, but by people around the world, that there's some things that, that people want improvements. And uh, so there, there may be an underlying level of, of venturesomeness, of openness that can be overcome by some other things like fear about whether you're going to have a job if this innovation occurs. But yeah. that the, 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 the jobs observation would be one that would give you hope. The original people against innovation, they're given the name Luddites, and there is a debate among historians. I don't know what's true, and I don't care too much, but there's debate about was there really a Ned Ludd who uh, led the rebellion against uh, some of the early automation of textiles? And some people say there really was, and some people say it's a legendary person who grew up over time. But the bigger issue is not that. The big issue is that if you look into why these people were trying to tear down factories, it wasn't that they that they were down on new technology per se. And in fact, some of them, I read one account that said some of them used hammers and axes that were the very latest version of axes as they were trying to tear down these factories. What they were concerned about was they were worried whether they would be able to make a living and feed their children if these this new way of making cloth became more widespread. And so if they could be reassured, and part of what I try to do in a couple chapters of my book is to reassure people with that kind of worry, if they could be reassured that they'll be okay as technology advances, then this these the original Luddites would be on board. They aren't against technology. They're against technology that will hurt their survival in their occupation. Well, thank you very much, Professor Diamond. I think that's the conclusion of the first part of this episode. And in the next part, we're going to talk about innovative dynamism in the post-World War II area, which we partly have done and uh, the present and the future and also some of the policy implications. Thank you very much and we look forward to welcoming you again next week. Thank you for inviting me to join your podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation and hope that everyone interested in further discussion of the issues we talked about will have a look at my book, Openness to Creative Destruction, Sustaining Innovative Dynamism, which is available on Amazon and directly from Oxford University Press.